Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm not your host, Scott Greer. I'm your favorite governor, Ron DeSantis, and I'm here to wish you a very happy Juneteenth. This is a holiday where we celebrate anti-woke Republicans fighting back against Democrats controlled by the woke mind virus and taking their slaves away. And I tell you what, in Florida, we teach the true history of Juneteenth. In Florida, we teach the history of racial discrimination more than any other state. And the wokesters don't want to hear that. I also have to thank Scott for allowing me to give you an introductory remark. I, You know, I'm not a real fan of Highly Respected because... They say such terrible things about me because they're a part of the fake news media. But I took this opportunity to reach a new audience of Greer Heads. Hopefully Greer Heads will join in me and my wife Casey in our crusade against the woke. And last weekend I had a lot of great moments. I Did you guys see I bartended? And I said, I will serve you anything except for Bud Light. That was really funny. I also delivered a strong message of what Florida is doing against the woke. I say, we buck the media, we buck Fauci, we buck the CDC, we buck the bureaucrats, we buck the left. But I do have to ask, I do have to add that Casey bucks Ron. I've heard this term, buck breaking. You could say that's a little bit of my relationship, but that's a part of my appeal. I really appeal to people. People see me as just one of them, as just a bartender who is anti-woke, anti-Bud Light. So thank you, Scott, for allowing me to give this introductory remarks. Wow. Uh, thank you, Governor DeSantis. That was really good. Uh, you know, maybe I may, we may reconsider our position on Ron DeSantis after he's appeared on this podcast. Like, no other presidential candidate has appeared on this podcast as much as our favorite governor, Ron DeSantis. So, uh, great, great message. Great uh, Juneteenth message we have from Ron DeSantis, allowing, you know, really telling us what the purpose of the holiday is, the meaning of the holiday. So thanks once again to DeSantis. But we're not going to be talking much about DeSantis today. The first topic we're going to have that we're going to discuss is another presidential candidate, but he's not even a Republican. He's a Democrat who's gaining a lot of support among conservatives, particularly on conservative Twitter and right-wing Twitter, and in a lot of conservative media, and that is, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and we're going to be talking about his candidacy, whether it's uh, super base, whether you should really be excited for it and supporting it and discussing it in length of what RFK Jr. is about, along with a couple of other topics. So RFK is gaining a lot of popularity. He has, even more than DeSantis, he has a very extremely online campaign. But a difference between him and DeSantis is, despite his... Um, horrible voice, which I think is uh, due to his medical conditions. I know he's had some medical problems over the years. I've told this in a previous podcast is that I've met RFK Jr. a long time ago in an RT green room. He was very nice, a very likable person. So I have nothing wrong with him as a person, even though he's had a little bit of a checkered past with um, heroin and uh, drug abuse and some um, marital problems. (laughs) 
and other issues. Uh, he is a very nice guy. I think that people like him because there's an earnestness to him and a genuineness to him that a lot of other candidates lack. And he is very like, you know, he does have, despite his horrible voice, which uh, I'm not quite sure what's caused by it, which is very strange that he is running for president because I've seen like just straight podcasts of him without like, you know, the visual element. And that's horrible to listen to. It's like um, the one where he talked about the frogs turning gay, uh, atrazine or whatever uh, chemicals in there. It's like you heard the voice and it's just his voice. And you're like, oh, my God. Uh, I mean, it is uh, not his fault or, you know, it's uh, uh, due to medical conditions, I assume. And his voice back in the day was fine. But he still is able to convey a lot of per- uh, charisma and personality. And I watched a lot of the Joe Rogan clips uh, from last week. And he definitely has an aura about him and a conviction about him that's very different from other candidates. And I think a lot of people gravitate towards that. And he is talking about a lot of issues that others don't, particularly when it comes to vaccines. Um, You know, his whole general thrust over vaccines in general, um, yeah, I respect it. I'm not sure I'm 100% convinced about that. This, once again, this is not COVID vaccines. This is vaccines in general. I can already hear people saying, cuck, 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 I'm going mad over the fact that I'm not 100% in favor or 100% in opposition to all vaccines. Um, but COVID, obviously, I agree with pretty much nearly everything he says on that. Because, I mean, even though it's not in a topic that's incredibly important to me, you know, I was convinced easily that, you know, I probably shouldn't get the vaccine because, one, it's not working as intended. It's not preventing the uh, you getting infected by COVID. And two, there's a lot of serious side effects, especially for young, healthy men like myself. So I felt that it was no need to get it. And that's all I needed to know. But I didn't follow it along uh, rather closely outside of that. But people are really into him because of his stances on COVID, the lockdowns. Uh, a lot of the things that have been going on, uh, foreign policy issues and the empire. You know, he's saying a lot of things that you would have only heard people on the online right say. And he's echoing that now. And he's seeming also more moderate or more sensible than Democrats on a variety of issues on the transgender stuff. You know, he believes that this shouldn't be taught in schools and that we should limit, um, you know, gender reassignment surgery and gender treatment for young kids. He's very much into that and most democrats would never even say that and he's also on the border he you know this is um wouldn't have been a radical position 10 years ago but now he's saying oh we should secure the border which that's a real radical position for the democrats that's far-right extremism and fascism for them and him simply saying that makes him stand out and i say say i think that's a lot of his persona um, you know, he does have a charismatic thing. He is this uh, Democrats really a lot of their Democrat base voters. You know, they are very anti-white man in general, but they really like these older, charismatic, liberal, slightly alpha. You could say alpha male guys as the leaders. Biden, even though he's like seen now, still sort of has that. And they really liked him because he presented this image of this guy who's like going to go up to the conservatives, point his finger in their face and tell them to leave our gay kids alone. And they're like, oh, man, we love that alpha male spirit. And they also really like Gavin Newsom, who has that, you know, Chad alpha male liberal coming in to support women's rights and other things. They're really into that idea. And RFK has that. And also... RFK has the Kennedy name, which, 
you know, people love the Kennedys. Like, I'm not a fan of the Kennedys, which we'll get into later, but people love the Kennedys. They think, that, you know, and just having the Kennedy name will make people want to vote for you. Even though they're clearly a family of nepotism and having a lot of issues, people still love them. And they love, they all think that JFK was the greatest president of all time or the greatest president of the 20th century, despite being a very weak president who did very little outside of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Are a little positive outside the Cuban missile, uh, resolving the Cuban Missile Crisis. No, people really positively associate with that. So I get why people are coming into this, and he does seem to be a person who's trying to appeal to these online sectors, uh, not just the right wing Twitter, but it's also appealing to Joe Rogan's crowd, which is a more mainstream version of a lot of things we see on right wing Twitter. Uh, appealing to a lot of conservatives, he always appears on Fox News. And, you know, there can definitely see this appeal to the Alex Jones crowd and others of, the, of that sort. I think his appeal to the right was captured best by Fisher King, uh, you know, that count. Some people, a little bit controversial, but I think he had a decent uh, take on why there's an appeal to, why some people find him appealing on the right. And he said, have now listened to entire Rogan RFK interview. Didn't agree with everything, but his ending message of creating a populist message that links right and left based on old middle class is compelling. Also, he spoke fluidly without notes, without talking wits for three hours. Not sure any other candidate could do that in a way that ranged over so many topics with such a command of the material. Reminded me of how totally staged the DeSantis Twitter rollout was with hand-picked friendly speakers asking what seemed like pre-arranged questions. And so that is true. It is like a breath of fresh air. If you watch like the Rogan thing, he, you know, sits and talks for, you know, like 10 minutes on a, on a question with Rogan just like, whoa, really? And he's just sitting there to, and he seems to have like a total command of the facts or at least total command of what he believes are the facts and just rolls them out and creates, I think, if the, the average Rogan listener and viewer watching that would have been like, you know what, I'm interested in this guy. This guy's got an interesting thing to say. And he knows like the Rogan audience because a core part of his thing is seeing all these bad things are created by the CIA and the Rogan crowd hates the CIA. And they're into some of the conspiracy theory, things that are labeled as conspiracy theory. There are also people who are likely to believe JFK was an awesome president, even though they may not know anything about JFK. And RFK Jr. was going full into that and in getting into that crowd. So, uh, but on the thing of like, what is the populist message that brings right and left together? Is it something that is identitarian or nationalist or something that is a part of the our core issues? Not quite, because it's about, the. from what I can gather his populist message is, is that we need to unite together to ban the CIA ban the ban vaccines and then we'll achieve american greatness through that and by withdrawing american troops from all these foreign places which is an idea i actually support but i'm not sure that this is quite what we're about either because and and, and even you can see that he's not i like what he's saying about other things but when it comes to our core issues he is not very good on and he's also like all over the place one thing to remember is that RFK's big issue prior to getting into vaccines, and he still largely is into this issue, but I think he knows he's smart enough not to play it up as much because a lot of the people who are getting into his message now are 
would be climate skeptics or people who are not full-blown environmentalists, but his big thing was environmentalism. And he had frequently talked about how we need to arrest people who deny climate change. And, you know, whatever your opinion about climate change is, you know, somebody who has little respect for free speech on that matter, it's, and it's very funny that he would do that because there's more support for throwing people in jail with his views on vaccines and other scientific questions and medical questions that he would support such a measure. And so he's always been all over the place. And it's the same with his place on foreign policy is that even though he is making this very anti-empire message, in the past, he has been a full-on empire supporter. He supported Hillary Clinton in all of her presidential campaigns, and not just in the general election, but in the primaries. He supported Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primary, and he strongly supported Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential primary, despite the fact that a large percentage of the people who are supporting him, who are actually Democrats, not Republicans, are people the old Bernie support base, which is where a lot of that uh, one-fifth of his support that some polls are showing, that's a large percentage of that group that is you know, turning into him. And that's who he's trying to appeal to, too, with his message, um, with a you know, kind of left-wing populist message is that who that's in large part who he's trying to win over. But he didn't support Bernie Sanders. And he was also extremely anti-Trump. He was a total believer in the Russia Gate thing. He was like saying, or Vladimir Putin has taken over our democracy. And he criticized Trump sharply in several op-eds about how he is ruining America's promotion of the democracy agenda is that it's taking away what America is an experiment and that experiment is spreading democracy around the world and he attacked Trump on those grounds and he said that Trump is ending our democracy so it's very much similar to a lot of what the resistance liberals were saying now you could say he had a change of mind over COVID that could be the case but you have to look at his recent past and this is not a young man. <laughs> he's a man who is almost 70 years old. And for all of his life, he's been outside of vaccines. And I would say his environmental positions are in keeping with the establishment left. He has largely been a creature of the establishment. He you know, got jobs through his family connections. You know, The Kennedys have always been at the heart of the Democratic establishment. And he's been there with them. Now, you know, maybe he's taken uh, a sidetrack after this, but you have to be skeptical about that. And it's also his son is fighting in Ukraine uh, with the Ukrainians, not with the Russians. <laughs> There's a little bit something skeptical about that. He he can't really decide what, uh, you know, America's role should be in the democracy promotion and everything else. You know, he's very anti-CIA and he's very much into these conspiracy theories around his father and uncle being killed by the CIA, which... Um, I, as people or listeners or know, know that I should that I don't believe that. I especially don't understand the conspiracy theory around his uncle or his dad, rather, is that he was killed by the CIA. And also, it's very weird for right wingers to be talking about how RFK was based. I can understand a little bit with JFK because JFK, you know, compared to the standards of the left, you know, just a few years later in the '60s and other things, he appears moderate. Uh, but he was a leftist. I mean, he was heavily promoting, you know, in terms of political figures who helped promote mass immigration in this country and making nation of immigrants like this stupid dogma for America. You know, Kennedy is one of the most guilty parties of that. You know, he wrote a, a book, 
co-authored with the ADL <laughs> called Nation of Immigrants. And it was promoting mass immigration in this country and how we should change our laws to let the entire world come here. And that are that we what makes America America are immigrants. And that's what he claims. And he also was a firm supporter of the civil rights regime and pushing it. The only reason that it didn't happen is that he was not a capable politician, which is always making this thing is that they the CIA was about to kill him because he was about to downsize the military industrial complex, which is what RFK was saying in his Joe Rogan interview. He was saying that my my uncle was wanting to have a complete withdrawal of troops from Vietnam and the military industrial complex said that was wrong. Actually, that is fake news. In the executive order that RFK was citing, and this is about a month before JFK's assassination, it was not a complete withdrawal of troops. It was a withdrawal of a thousand troops, and this was recommended by the Pentagon and the Defense Department. Is that Kennedy wasn't the one initiating it? The you know Maxwell Taylor was the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, or Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, along with Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense. This is the military-industrial complex recommending this withdrawal, and they recommend this withdrawal in order to put pressure on the South Vietnamese to make changes uh, to their war regime. This was not initiated by Kennedy. And Kennedy was a firm supporter of higher defense spending. When he ran in 1960, he was claiming that uh, Richard Nixon was not as tough on uh, defense as that, and he wanted to spend more than Richard Nixon, and he would have been advocating for that in 1964 if when he was running for re-election. He was a strong supporter of the military-industrial complex, as were pretty much nearly every politician uh, who wanted to be, you know, be president, as their strong supporters. Except for, I mean, Eisenhower obviously gave his parting speech warning about it, but. Every other candidate, person who wanted to be president, was very much in favor of the military-industrial complex. And his stances on Vietnam, I mean, he escalated American involvement in there. And he actually ensured that America would stay involved by authorizing the deposal of Diem, who was the South Vietnamese leader, which he had problems with it. But after Diem, the government became more unstable, more coups run by the military, less political and popular support among the people than even Diem. And that ensured that America would stay there because there was this unstable government that was constantly going through coups and didn't have any popular level of support. And we had to provide the military support for them. And Kennedy had approved this. And so he ensured that we would stay in Vietnam because he was making the situation a lot worse. So his withdrawal was something that was uh, suggested by the military industrial complex, not something that came from Kennedy. But we have all these myths. I mean, there's so many myths about Kennedy that he was going to end banks, for one, uh, that he was going to end the CIA. All these are, you know, he had his own problems with the CIA, but he, he couldn't have he couldn't have broken up the CIA because he couldn't have gotten, he did, couldn't even get any of his legislative agenda through. You know, he wanted to pass the Civil Rights Act. He couldn't get it through. He couldn't get any, he was an incompetent president when it came to the legislative process. And it was up to a master legislator in LBJ who got the Kennedy agenda, agenda through, which is Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, and the 65 Immigration Act, all things that the right should oppose. And yet, uh, that's the Kennedy agenda. And LBJ promised that I'm going to get the Kennedy agenda through. And he did. And it was all terrible left-wing garbage. And he also escalated the conflict in Vietnam, which, uh, you know, that was also part of fulfilling the Kennedy legacy. Now, RFK Jr. became a Vietnam critic after it began going south later on in the 60s. And when he was running in 68, he was 
uh, much more of a dove on this issue than LBJ. So his father was that. But, you know, RFK Sr. was killed by a Palestinian who thought he was pro, too pro-Israel, which, is, uh, which people were like, oh, no, RFK was about to cancel Israel or something, which, no, that's not true at all. And he was not really going against the military-industrial complex either. But, you know, they, they, people love these conspiracy theories because people have still have this long-standing infatuation with the Kennedys. You know, and it's extended past the boomers, too. And really, if you want to see what RFK's agenda is, it's really the Oliver Stone agenda. Minus with, with like, some uh, difference. The major difference is that RFK Jr. is not a uh, Russia cheerleader in the same way or a Putin fan in the same way that Oliver Stone is. But everything else is, like, the same. It's like blaming the CIA for everything. And then, which, not to say the CIA is good or great, but I'm just saying it's... It's an easy target, and it doesn't really explain the underlying structural and social issues that are going on. And it's just like, oh, the CIA is behind this. And it's imagining that the entire evil force of America is just the CIA, which uh, compared to other institutions, like I would say the Department of Justice, our universities, <laughs> and even the media are far worse than the CIA. But um, that's, not, that's, a, that's a topic for another day. But even blames the CIA for the immigration crisis that we have. And his immigration stance is not really that good. He did visit the border. He did say, like, this is a problem. But comparing this, he's, like, about the same as Kirsten Cinema and, and Joe Manchin. Like, the very modern Democrats. Which is still not very good. And he's always likes to emphasize that we need more immigration. And so here's uh, some of his tweets that he said. Is it possible to be pro-immigration and pro-closing the border? Yes, America should be a haven of freedom and prosperity, open to law-abiding migrants who will contribute to our society. However, immigration must proceed in an orderly, lawful manner. Right now, we have chaos at the border, human trafficking, criminality, intolerable stress on border states like Texas. It is a humanitarian nightmare. Uh, this is something that Barack Obama would have said in 2016. He does highlight some of these uh, immigrant crimes that are going on that a lot of don't. Like he highlighted this uh, horrific murders taking place by this, uh, by this illegal immigrant in Texas. But instead, he says that we shouldn't let all these illegal immigrants in because they stoke bigotry. And he says, as president, I will enforce a secure border and I will expand the kind of legal immigration that made our country great. Um, expanding legal immigration. I don't know if that's very base, but once again, he's like is essentially stressing the Barack Obama Democratic agenda, which, you know, Barack Obama tried to pretend that he wanted to secure the border. Well, compared to Joe Biden, you know, he was definitely like a border hawk. Uh, and the Biden administration, you know, they tried to increase deportations. They tried to put some security measures there. And that was trying to do Republicans into supporting a full-blown amnesty you know giving amnesty to all illegal immigrants in the country um, thankfully republicans uh, resisted that temptation at least to an extent but that's it and even what he believes illegal immigration is caused by which it's literally caused by american corporations and american politicians inviting them in and it's all driven by our policies and but he wants to go with the oliver stone it's all the cia fault and here's what he said in another tweet about this why are so many people so desperate in the first place to leave their homes and countries behind for an uncertain future? The answer is uncomfortable. In large part, the US, it is U.S. policies that create desperate conditions south of the border. The war on drugs is one. 
the war on drugs is in fact keyed. Um, but back to what RFK was saying, U.S. funded dictators, Utahs, paramilitaries and death squads, neoliberal extraction of resources, unpayable debts. All of this sounds very keyed. I actually think we need to increase this stuff. Um, all this stuff was, and this is like all stuff that's like happened in the 80s. Like what was the last time we were funding death squads and paramilitaries? Like it, you'd have to, like the Contras were a long time ago. The Contras are older than me. <laughs> you know, uh, So I don't know if it's really the Contras here, but neoliberal extraction resources, uh, that also sounds pretty cute. We need more of that too. Unpayable debts. You know, they got to learn to pay their debts. What's wrong with this? It is inhumane and hypocritical to deny immigration while creating the conditions that drive immigration. Um, you know, um, I don't think these are the problems. I mean, I think it's, you know, a lot of these issues that he's complaining about, these are well into the 80s. These are Cold War stuff. And, and Latin America is still getting upset about it. But Latin America is like a shit show on itself. Like Venezuela, we did not create Venezuela, the socialist government there. They initiated on their own. We've been trying to overthrow them to have a more stable government. So they're not having all these people flee. But they're all fleeing. It's the same with Nicaragua. Uh, Cuba and Haiti. We do not like the local. We do not like the governments there. But those are what are supplying a large percentage of our migrants, and we're even giving them legal pathways now uh, of those four countries. And yet they're still coming. I mean, it's not our fault that those countries are shitholes, but apparently it is due to the CIA and the war on drugs, um, which I'm not even uh, quite sure of, of that. It's also. Uh, I once again, I'm very pro war on drugs. I think we need more of it. Um, I, I do not like walking around and smelling weed. We need to have a full when people tell me it's like, oh, low level marijuana, people convicted of low level marijuana position are going to jail. I'm like, uh, key, let's do that. We need more of that. And even when it comes south the border, it's like, we have to suppress this stuff. I mean, if we're not suppressing it, they're like, oh, we'll have a stable, safe uh, market. We've been legalizing weed, and they're still like, criminal activity of people like going into marijuana farms and robbing them or shooting them and like all this type of really dirty business and also those communities that are having becoming the centers of marijuana industry are seeing a lot of crime and their quality of life go down because once again like the entire area smells like weed second off they're inviting shady uh potheads there who are not model citizens and it's also uh you know even though they always wanted to claim that pot is not addictive and you could say it's maybe the new, stronger variants of it that are making it more addictive. But it is, like, very addictive. Like, if you've ever met a stoner, like, they can't quit. They can't quit. And uh, But now we're just encouraging that. So, But on the, on the immigration topic, this is stupid because this is all old stuff. This is not, like... What what the hell is neoliberal extraction resource? I guess that's like uh, talking about us overthrowing some of the some uh, left wing governments in the Cold War uh, on behalf of like some American interests. Which uh, you know, let's do it. It's like uh, it's like Trump. It's like we should have taken the oil. Like hell yeah. Like that's like the type of uh, interventions I can support. That it support American interests. I don't like the ones that are we're building democracy and wasting blood and treasure for nothing you know at least we're getting something out of that um so i don't know these are none of these are the reasons why it's like it's just these countries are basket cases that can't run themselves yeah they're terrible conditions but also the people think they can get in 
If they knew they couldn't get in, if there was like an opposing wall between them. Also, Kennedy doesn't support a wall. He doesn't support a wall. He doesn't support a wall at all. So he he supports some barriers and stuff. It's like the Barack Obama uh, comprehensive immigration reform plan. He doesn't say anything about giving amnesty. So I will say that's a difference between him and Obama. But this is all the stuff that Obama was talking about, you know, in his last term. In his presidential race. So maybe that's a breath of fresh air compared to Democrats now. And it is because Democrats don't want any immigration enforcement. I mean, all immigration enforcement is fascism and racism. They can't support any type of immigration enforcement. They can't support any deportation. They want everyone to come in, be welcome in, and give permanent status here. And that's like the Democratic mainstream. And but the but the immigration stuff, it's once again, a lot of this messaging that Kennedy is talking about, it's more about appealing to Republicans than it is actually to appealing to Democrats. Like Democrats are also on the opposite end about this gender stuff. Now, he may there may be there are a lot of independents who would like what he's saying about immigration and the gender ideology stuff in their schools. I, I would 100 uh, percent you know, understand that. But he's running in a Democratic primary. He's not running in an independent primary. And it's combined with the anti-empire stuff and bringing the empire, you know, bringing America home, which is appealing to the Bernie bros segment. But the Bernie bro people were very pro-vaccine uh, based on the Chapo Trap House and all the major podcasts. Uh, they're very pro-gender ideology in schools and they want total open borders. So, like, even that segment uh, that he's primarily dealing with in terms of, like, his, you know, talking about the establishment, talking about the empire, you know, those people are on a different wavelength. Now, actually, on the vaccines, I think there's probably a little bit more of the Bernie bros who are more skeptical of it than the rest of the establishment party. But it depends. It depends on who who you're discussing. But when it comes to gender ideology and immigration, there are total open borders, and total like uh, transgender indoctrination for kindergartners. You know, they're totally into that. So I don't know what type of base of support he has in the Democratic Party. And some people are saying, oh, he's a serious threat. And if Biden wasn't running, he could be the nominee. And people are really excited about this, namely Republicans. But the reason why he has so much support is Kennedy name. He does have a natural level of charisma. They, they can't get rid of a charismatic Kennedy. Three, he's not Biden. And he's got and he's got a degree and people a lot of Democrats just don't want Biden again. And, you know, combined with Marianne Williamson, I think it's probably about a fourth of Democrats who are willing, even with Biden on the ballot, are willing to support another candidate because they realize the limitations of Biden. As I've been talking about now, I, you know, I go back and forth on whether he's going to be the candidate. But seeing his latest public appearances, Biden's health is in serious decline, like a really bad decline, like mental decline. Like his gaffes are getting far worse. He's keeling over at random moments. He can't, he can't take, he literally doesn't take any questions anymore, which, you know, 2021 and early 2022, he would take a few reporters questions. He absolutely takes none now, none, none at all, because he knows he can't like, even with the scripted and and calling on a friendly reporter is that they can't trust him to stick on message. And he, I don't think he's going to have the ability to campaign. There is this stuff that's coming out, like, uh, you know, the Burisma bribing and some of the other Chinese stuff that's, that's surrounding him and even the documents investigation. 
And I think the, you know, the deep state, the uh, unelected bureaucracy may try to push them out because they're like, I don't think we can win with Biden. And I don't think Biden would survive. And I don't also don't think they want Kamala Harris as VP. So he may not, you know, we'll see if by the end of the year he's still in the race. I think he's going to be the nominee or at least by the time the primaries start. Um, so we've got about a, um, six or seven months <laughs> to, to see to see when this happens. But, uh, you know, his health is really bad. I mean, he, and he is in his 80s, and you can just, like, one day, you know, you have a serious illness or serious health condition that ensures you can't, you know, be, you know, you can't do what you were doing before. Or you may not even be alive anymore. So this is going to all happen with Biden. But that's probably not going to help RFK. Is RFK is mostly helped by being the most popular person not named Biden. And there's a lot of discontent with Biden among Democratic ranks. They like, I think they'll agree with him when he's saying about the CIA and stuff. And even though there's like a deep state Democrat now thing, there's still that, that Bernie bro segment still likes that stuff. There's still a lot of old school liberals who like that like that message, even though they may not agree with him on the vaccines. That's another problem that would limit him. But if it was not Biden, it would obviously be, it's it would be Gavin Newsom. Kamala is the most unlikable politician in America. She failed miserably in 2020. She's not going to succeed now. I think her stock has only plummeted further as vice president and people realizing she's a moron and just like has no ability to connect with normal American people. Uh, Buttigieg is that the Biden administration has really been trying to kneecap him over the infrastructure issues and sitting out and kind of embarrassing him and blaming him for all this stuff. And I also he still has that problem of being, you know, not who elderly black women want to support because you know, he's gay and he's just a strange person. And there's not just like that. I mean, they have uh, some of the other also rands like Cory Booker. He's not going to be it. And he does not have what it takes. Uh, you know, Cory Booker's not it. You have uh, Klobuchar. Klobuchar, once again, and even though she was getting support, uh, you have to remember is that the reason why she was no longer considered for VP is because she had she had, when she was a, a district attorney in Minneapolis, she uh, helped out Derek Chauvin. So it's uh, that's not going to help her in a Democratic primary at all. So it would little they have a they do not have a deep roster. You know, if Andrew Cuomo hadn't been defeated by you know his many scandals, he could have had a comeback. But not going to be Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo's down and out. It's literally just Gavin Newsom. He's not affiliated with the administration. He hasn't been, you know, kneecapped by them. And he is this, like, charismatic alpha white guy that a lot of the liberal base likes. And he could probably, whatever these elderly black women is like, oh, he's such a nice white boy. You know, and they would they would support him too. It would, little, it would be Gavin Newsom. I mean, it's so, I was one of the first people to be, suggest, to be suggesting this. Um... Actually, do you suggest <laughs> to be suggesting? I think we're taking a little bit on uh, some AAVE here uh, with those uh, discussions. But no, I was one of the first to suggest that like Gavin Newsom would be, you know, would maybe the Democratic nominee for 2024. And it could be this blue Caesar that people talk about um, at that time. I think I was talking about this all the way back in 2021, definitely 2022, early 2022. But 
I was saying this, and it's it's now everyone's agreeing with that stance. It's pretty much just Gavin Newsom, and if like Biden's out of the way, Newsom would enter the race and would probably win it. I think a lot of the JF, uh, RFK <laughs> RFK Junior support would dissipate. You know, he may keep ten, he may stay in the low double digits, but it wouldn't be enough to secure him the nomination. And there all there could be other people jumping in. Bernie could, you know, he's even older than Biden, you know, could jump in and steal a lot of that support from RFK Jr. So it's something to look at. But you know, RFK with um, he's mainly benefiting by not being Biden and being one of the few people to challenge Biden. But if there was a situation where there was others jumping in, you know, people would uh, rally around that person. You know, he's in some ways. Um, you know, this bringing up a, a parallel with his father, he's more like Eugene McCarthy in the 1968 Democratic primary than he is like his own father. But there's way more disc- discontent among Democrats back in the 68 primary. But Eugene McCarthy was just random, like not a really particularly known senator, but he was simply ran on an agenda about getting us on changing Vietnam policy, which both attracted not only people who wanted a total withdrawal, but people who wanted a greater commitment to Vietnam within the party because there's a lot of people who are like, oh, the administration is dilly-dallying. They should be stronger commitment to Vietnam versus those who wanted a total withdrawal. And so people who were... So those two different opinions both rallied around Eugene McCarthy simply because he was challenging him on Vietnam policy. I don't see that type of issue. And, but once... You know, once RFK Sr. saw that this guy was getting a lot of support and there was a lot of Democrats who were wanting to, you know, not have LBJ as their candidate, he jumped in the primary and stole a lot of that McCarthy support. And so the same could happen with his son in 2024. But, I mean, there's, like, clear differences. One, there's not a central issue that is causing a lot of unrest and turmoil and discontent among Democrats. It's certainly not the vaccines and the lockdown. That is a Republican issue. Like Democrats don't care about that. Are they? They were like the lockdowns were awesome, and the vaccine is awesome. Greatest gift that we've ever seen. Thank you, Doctor Fauci. You know they love Fauci. Uh, so that's not an issue among the base. Um, the empire. <laughs> most Democrats are flying the Ukraine flag and think we need a greater commitment to Ukraine. So it's not really that. There's not much discontent with that. Uh, discontent over the border. Most Democrats think we should have open borders. So it's unclear what L- what RFK is running on that's really a bone of contention within the base towards Biden, except for the fact that most Democrats are realizing Biden is in serious declining health and cannot inspire people to vote for him. And simply just his persona rather than any issue, which is a little bit more difficult to run on when... Uh, compared to a particular issue and making that it. And also the fact that you are the first to make it that issue helps you in a primary without that president, um, presidential incumbent running uh, as well in the primary. So I don't see him as a serious threat in the Democratic primary. It's also to note that he's not going on media platforms that is where Democrat voters are. He's going on conservative platforms or platforms for independent voters. Like, you know, and anytime he goes on MSNBC and these stuff, they just you know, viciously attack him over vaccines and stuff and say he's mis- disinformation. And most Democratic voters agree with MSNBC and all those channels that are attacking him with it. So 
You know, he's running on an issue that's more important to Republicans than it is to Democrats, and he's on the opposite side of the majority of Democrats on that issue. But on the overall position is is RFK Jr. based or cringe? Is he, is he worthy of support? Is it is it right for right-wingers to soy jack for him? I would say it's uh, it's not right for right-wingers to soy jack over him, but I also don't think it's relatively harmless. As long as people are not deciding that RFK Jr. is better than Trump. No, Trump is far better than Trump. Or Trump is far better than Trump. Trump is far better than RFK. If I had to do a rankings of the presidential candidates, above and beyond, number one is obviously Trump. Two, I'd rank Vivek higher than RFK. And policy-wise, I would rank DeSantis higher, but personality-wise and what in their persona and everything of that sort, I rank RFK higher than DeSantis. But on policy, obviously, DeSantis is better, but DeSantis just sucks. <laughs> and it's just such a dork, and it is ultimately a creature of the conservative establishment and Republican and conservative media and the Republican establishment that I just don't really trust him as a president. I would trust RFK. I don't know what the hell RFK would do as president. He may just send us all to a camp for disbelieving in climate change. But, uh, you know, on that ranking list, I'd probably put it as those four. Maybe I'll say RFK is tied with DeSantis. Is that I like him a lot more or I find him a lot more interesting and more compelling than DeSantis. But DeSantis has better policy issues. But I'll, so I'll say they're tied, but you know, Vivek, Trump and Vivek are much better. I would only say it's harmful if people begin, you know, if they're still like largely Trump supporters, but then like, oh, I like what he's saying about this. I like what they're saying about what he's saying about this, all this stuff. I think it's harmless. I think it's it's. I, I do find him interesting. I do find that it, it is. Um, you know, it's good content to see him out there spreading ideas that Democrats don't want to hear and angering them and getting a little bit of support. So I have no issue with that. I just think it only becomes harmful if people then decide, oh, he's much better than than Trump or I'm switching to from R, from Trump to RFK support. That's the only time I could say that it becomes harmful and stupid. But I have not seen a lot of people do that yet. But if that becomes down the line where everyone is now like, you know, people are making memes and stuff, and it becomes like a Yang Gang thing. Um, but even more important, because it's like yeah, RFK is probably more serious candidate than Yang. Um, I, I would not be supportive of that. <laughs> I don't think that's the way you want to go down that route. But I have not seen people go down that route. So, but I, I ultimately don't think he's really based. I think if you're looking at the issues, it's nice that it, you know. I like that he's saying, you know, things about the COVID vaccine. I like how he's making some points about uh, American imperial commitments that we can no longer support. Um, I do not like how he's continuing on the Kennedy myth. The Kennedys were not based. They actually have been a curse upon America. <laughs> um, even though I like uh, RFK personally and I like what he says, I don't, I am not a Kennedy fan. But anyway, it's nice what he's saying, but the... What his ultimate message is, if you think of him as like uniting right and left behind a populist message, which a lot of right wingers have just been fawning over this idea for years and years, is like uniting the far right and the far left. This is what we need to do to achieve. And what is that message we're coming behind? It's all about vaccines and it's all about the CIA. And it may even be about climate change, which <laughs> depending on where RFK goes. And it's not about the identity issues at all, which is, I, as I emphasized in my speech uh, that I delivered at a VDR conference last weekend, and I'll probably post the speech outline 
to my Substack tomorrow. You know, identity issues are a core, our core focus. We are identitarians. We are nationalists. We, you know, I think a lot of people are very critical or skeptical of vaccines, especially the COVID vaccine. I think a lot of people are uh, skeptical of the deep state and other things. But the CIA and the vaccines are not our core issue. They're not our core issue. Our core issue is mass immigration, demographic replacement, anti-white racism and that stuff. And Kennedy doesn't address that stuff. And even when it comes to immigration, it's basically presenting Barack Obama's agenda, which due to how bad the Democrats are, that now sounds like, wow, this is like right wing radicalism, which it's not. It's just Barack Obama's immigration and platform and agenda and message, which it's, it's just showing the sorry state of Democrats on that issue now. But with all this in mind, you know, that's not a message we could support because that's not uniting us. That's totally ditching our primary issues and adopting some of our secondary issues and then turning us into the coalition of goobers. Because in a lot of ways, this is like RT's like ideal coalition is that all the goobers come together to unite uh, behind uh, opposing the CIA. And you could have even seen that in the really uh, poorly attended anti-Ukraine war protest in dc i think it was like a month or two months ago which i you know might have been three months ago it's a long you know time flies by when you're having fun i guess or being key and at that protest it was like all these strange fringe groups like you know communist party and like and caps and all these guys were just like you know dressed up goobers it's not like a thing and it only got a few hundred people at most and it was just like a, a weird coalition of goobers. I don't think that would be quite the case with RFK, but and RFK would be expanding beyond that. But it's almost, you know, it's a coalition gathered together to, you know, work towards uh, defunding the CIA and that's it. But it's not, but then increasing legal immigration, which is, that's not what we're about. I'd rather keep the CIA and limit legal immigration if, if given the choice. And in fact, the only people who want this coalition are people on the right. Nobody on the left wants it, but the right have to give up our core issues to have a coalition with people who are vaguely on the left, but they're really just RT leftists and like the goofiest people possible, you know, like American communists, like unironic communists and tankies. And that doesn't represent, that represents a very tiny fraction of the left. And even most of the left hates them. Like Antifa hates them. The establishment liberal hates them. You know, even most of the Bernie bros hate them. The Bernie bros, as majority, will never unite with the right because they hate us more than they hate the CIA, more than they hate corporations, more than they hate any part of the American system. They hate right-wingers more than anything else. And so they'll never ally with us, and we should, we should stop trying to fantasize and, and have these delusions about uniting with them. And this goes along with, you know, I've seen this retconning of what Occupy Wall Street was about. It's a little bit separate talk, but I'm done with the RFK. I would say my conclusion on RFK Jr. is that I like a lot of things about him. I like his persona. I like his uh, personality, even though I don't like the Kennedy legacy. I don't like the Kennedys at all. That's probably fit for a IQ <laughs> many IQ supplements on both his father and his uncle. But uh, I don't think right wingers. It's fine for people to tweet out like this is interesting or I like this take. But you need to be wary of turning this into another Yang game moment and people memeing him into their favorite candidate. Our candidate is Trump. The guy we're with is behind Trump. He is the closest 
figure to the type of nationalist leader we want, and he's the closest person to advancing our core interests, which are the identity issues. And RFK Jr. sets them aside and focuses on secondary issues to us. So that's my conclusion on RFK. Now on to the Occupy Wall Street. Is that uh, it, this is also once again only coming from the right, as the right has Occupy Wall Street was a relatively insignificant, in historical terms, relatively insignificant protest movement. You know, at that time we hadn't experienced many protest movements, but we had this. You know, people camped out on Wall Street, and you know, there's a lot of millennials there and stuff, and. People, you know, people took interest in it because there wasn't like much of a protest movement. And there had all been this predictions after the 2008 Great Recessions that, oh, we're going to witness like a new, you know, type of New Deal conditions and Great Depression. And we're going to see a lot of social turmoil and everything. And all it came out of is Occupy Wall Street, which were Starbucks baristas and other, you know, underemployed millennials going there and you know being pissed off about their student loans i think they had some legitimate you know issues but it wasn't a real threat it was not like the banks were about to be overthrown by occupy wall street it was just like there and also occupy wall street still had a lot of the same leftism as today even though it was primarily you know a vague anti big corporations or anti bank stuff you know they still had all the identity politics there and all these people would go on to be, you know, supporting anti-white leftism as well. And it's the same with like even Bernie Sanders. Like Bernie Sanders, you know, he didn't emphasize this stuff as much in 2016. And even said like, you know, at the start of his campaign, he said like Open Borders is a Koch brothers idea. By the time of 2016, he was fully immersed in all the anti, you know, white wokeness stuff. And by 2020, he was totally for Open Borders, pro-BLM, pro-all this race stuff pro-wokeness and he had totally dispensed with that and his audience stayed with him <clears throat> but the right has invented this myth that oh, occupy wall street was completely anti-identity politics and it united the right and left together against the banks and a lot of libertarians are into this idea too and they believe that klaus schwab and the establishment invented identity politics to destroy and to undermine occupy wall street when identity politics has existed much much longer than before uh, Occupy Wall Street's existence and also Occupy Wall Street did not threaten the banks. But it's become a big right-wing meme. It's And it's you have to remember is that this isn't shared by the left at all. The left, the left thinks like identity politics is important, but it's the right who's like fantasizing and creating this image of Occupy Wall Street as this epic movement that was totally opposed to identity politics and could unite right and left together. When at that time, it was a very left-wing movement even though it didn't emphasize identity politics as much as, say, Black Lives Matter, it was still very keen on that subject and it was all filled with leftists. Right-wingers hated it at the time because they saw it as naturally as like, these people hate me. I go up and it's like these smelly loser guys who have none of my same interests, who have completely different interests. They are my natural political foes. I'm not going to support this. Like, I'm not going to go tenant, pitch a tent with some dude who got like some mentally ill Starbucks barista. You know, that's not my people. And that's what a lot and right wingers hated it at the time. But now right wingers, at least on the Internet and at least for meme purposes, they love Occupy Wall Street. And it's once again like, you know, the, the, 
This is a, entirely a desire for a coalition, a desire for a coalition with the left is entirely driven by the right. There is no desire for it on the left. None of these memes circulate on the left about how Klaus Schwab and other right wing fo- and George Soros invented identity politics to destroy the epicness of Occupy Wall Street. None of them share that belief. They they do think that, like, you know, the Democratic Party didn't express it, but they just think it wasn't identity politics. It's just that neoliberalism uh, destroyed it. And that's the focus. But right wingers still wish that Occupy Wall Street would uh, bring them to the rally. I mean, right wingers approach leftists like nerds approach popular kids who show an interest in them. Like if a random leftist is like, oh, hey, it's a right winger. I'll be nice to you. I'll be friendly with you. They all like soy jack and see that. There's like a picture of Sorab Amari over, you know, the compact magazine editor, you know, integralist guy who's been attacking right wingers for being racist. You know, he had a picture with some left wing European politician. He's like hugging him. He's like so excited for him. He's like fangirling. It's like, look, I have a picture with a leftist. I'm a cool kid now. And it's very much how the nerds in like high school, if they like get invited to a party by a popular kid or it's like a popular kid is nice to them, like, I'm so excited, I can't believe it. We need a coalition with the popular kids. And the difference here is that the leftists are not popular kids. They're not cool kids. Like you don't really want a left alliance with them. But right wingers are so desperate for that alliance with leftists that they'll just uh, throw all common sense to the wind and just jump on board. So that's uh that's it that's it for uh that and that's partially some of the thing with rfk even though rfk is doing is really trying hard to appeal to conservatives and independents more than he's trying to appeal to democrats so that's some of the uh motivation going on there some of the trends you're seeing in that but that's it for that topic i got a few more uh topics to discuss before or really just one topic before we get to the economy League questions so it's actually just one topic, and this is a topic that I want to describe as the grill dad phenomenon or the grill dad push on the right that I'm seeing a lot. And it's both coming from dissident circles or right-wing Twitter and the mainstream right. And I think I a lot of goal I see among people. I don't think this is a bad goal, but I do think that this contradicts some of the radical approach of some people or contradicts some of the goals that they may want to have but everyone wants to that i'm seeing from the right wants to become a grill dad and a grill dad is that they become a nice middle class father who's providing for his family which is actually a nice goal uh, at the same time when they're promoting this idea they're suggesting very bad advice about achieving it and also suggesting uh proposals and ideas to come from that that are uh, <laughs> conflict with the grilled dad lifestyle and really what the grilled dad thing is is that we want to become super normie is that we just want to grill and we want to watch football and we just want to have the standard middle class life which people then pretend that this is a radical rejection of life is like they don't want you to grill they don't want you to have a suburban home. They do not want you to work a job. And you're like, um, no, they actually are fine with this. It's not saying that that's like a bad thing that they approve it, but it's not a radical rejection of society by you grilling, you know, hamburgers on Saturday for your family. And people want to make these very banal, very average things into rejections of things, into into a rebellion of sorts to 
I think it's to please some of their market and their uh, their audience now because a lot of them are generic dad, grill dads or divorced dads, a lot of divorce. And they want to achieve that and being told like, hey, everything you're doing right now is a total rejection of the left and, the, and it's a rebellion against the system. They're like, sweet, this is awesome. I'm going to grill some more, which nothing wrong with grilling. Once again, nothing wrong with that at all. But I think it does create a... A kind of silly discourse that's happening, and you see that a lot. It's like guys will go on there. It's like once I have achieved my grill dad uh, status, I can then start to work for civil war and revolution. And I'm seeing this a lot in the light of the Father's Day, which Father's Day we we love our fathers out there, but you're probably not going to be able to participate in a civil war revolution or any type of radical ideas if you're a grill dad, because your primary responsibility is going to be providing for your family, not forming a cul-de-sac militia to take down the local government and you know if you did that that obviously puts your job at risk uh, that puts your ability to stay out of prison at risk and puts your reputation at risk which is all what a wife does not want but it's a it's an ideal that people present and it's part of this fetish fetish with norm being normie which there's nothing wrong with trying to be presentable and not be a weirdo but it, some people take it to a degree where it's like i'm extremely normal i'm very normal that's why i'm on a fringe part of twitter all the time talking about how normal i am i'm just so normal i'm more normal than you and that's like what a lot of people are competing with is just like i'm the normal pe- person and the one funny thing is like even the far left does it is like every person with like a trans flag and stuff they'll talk about how extremely normal they are and they're grill dads too i well uh, grill moms <laughs> but without kids hopefully and they'll even talk about that about how the real weirdos are these other people it becomes this strange discourse because once again everyone on twitter is probably weird uh, by uh, normal normie standards and especially if you're involved in fringe politics but everyone is just like trying to I'll compete who's the more grill dad normie than any other people. But that's like a, you know, very niche interest that I was seeing. But on a larger topic, I was seeing a conservatives promote the uh, grill dad phenomenon or rather that we need more dads or men to step up uh, in the build up to Father's Day. His National Review had a whole like where are the dads or where are the good men issue where once again it was like the same platitudes all the time it's women saying like my dad went into a burning home to save somebody why are millennial men not doing this all the time and it's you know uh, which maybe men should have that risk-taking behavior but it also misunderstands the type of man they want or what's the ideal stressed by uh, these conservative cells. and then there's like older men who are married and they're like men if you want to step up you need to Stop playing video games and delete all dating apps, which so once again, you need to get rid of your hobbies and then eliminate the one way of finding women and that suddenly women will appear. Uh, this is always suggestion that they have. This is like the National Review issue. And of course, they did say, where are the good men stepping up? And I also saw like uh, I think yesterday, Washington Examiner, one of those sites, Washington Times. Uh, had an article is like we need more good dads in this world we need more men to step up now i never saw this stuff coming out about the crisis of men and crisis and manhood and, and this is same even with josh hawley like josh hawley's american manhood book is presenting that this ideal of grill dad is like you are a stable provider and this is what men need and we actually 
do need some of that, but I think it also misunderstands like what's the root of men not entering marriage. I think, when, especially with the people who are in, indulging this stuff, a lot of the right wing men and conservative men want families, want wives, but a lot of them, have, you know, I think may struggle with that depending on their area. And the only advice people offer them are is like terrible advice. Is like it's all your fault. It's all because you have hobbies that you know maybe prevent you from. Uh, finding women it's all because you're on a dating app which you know there's no uh, argument similar made to women and it's all that you need to continue to rapidly improve yourself to fit this ideal that all men should be in it basically what they want is a domesticated beast is that they essentially want like an arnold schwarzenegger who is this, our navy seal type who is this big intimidating guy but on the home front he is fully domesticated, fully longhouse, where the wife is like, um, John, did you forget to get the cleaning supplies again? And he's like, yes, honey. And then the wife, like, all make fun of the big imposing Navy SEAL. And he's like, oh, man. And then he's, like, having a tea party with his daughter. And he's, like, a very domesticated, like, the wife is constantly nagging him and nagging him and undermining him. And it's like a TV dad. But at the same time, he's like a ruthless beast that with like if there's an intruder he takes out a bowie knife and slits open his throat and and, and disembowels him before the whole family without the family seeing it of course and you know this is like the dad ideal it's like he's wearing an apron with like girl dad on it like a like a really humiliating emasculating thing of like in pink letters and his like whole family is like making fun of him and undermining him and letting him know that he's like not the boss here but at the same time, and he's also fully loyal to his wife. You won't even look at another woman. And at the same time, he's able, capable of committing great acts of violence and also showing total disregard for his risks. And it's the one thing is that people need to know if you have, like, if you're a type of man to take a lot of risks in risky behavior or demonstrate that level of violence. You're probably not going to be one of the the domesticated type. Okay, you might have a little bit of problems with domestication if you're, and you can see that with even these Navy SEALs who get a, who get married or Special Forces guys. Like they do have a, you know some troubles at home because it's hard for them to become domesticated, do their life. But the conservative ideal is that these guys will just be total like you know, little dogs at home and they'll be like that the whole time. But at some moment they turn into, you know, Chris Kyle or to the Terminator and they eliminate all threats. Which that's not to say that like some of these guys can't stand up for themselves or protect their family. But it is like an unrealistic idea. It's like I've always talked about the conservative fem cell ideal is this guy and who makes half a million dollars but doesn't really work because he has tons of time to vacation and spend time with his fat-ass conservative fem cell girlfriend, uh, drives a pickup truck, wears cowboy boots all the time, has a southern accent, is really strong and jacked, and is totally enthralled with like the conservative fem cells, like idiotic hobbies, but never plays video games and doesn't have any hobbies of his own outside of like uh, hunting and fishing maybe. And and also making lots of money and being totally devoted to his conservative fem cell girlfriend. And this is what all men should should try to aspire to. But all the advice to women is like nothing about improving themselves or nothing about what needs to be changed among American women. And that's all these arguments about, you know, when it comes to war on gender or at least mainstream conservative publications about this matter. It's all a crisis of men. 
it is, and that's even with Josh Hawley's book as well. It's like all the women are great. The women are great. It's there's something wrong with men. Like there's all these beautiful like women out there who are ready for guys to drop the the game controller and step up and become a man. And that just like just ignores like the situation is like a lot of the reason that is not that people are not marrying and having kids as much as that a lot of women. And this is somewhat with men. I don't want to blame women as like their own personal behavior because I think this is mat larger social changes that no individual is in control of. But a lot of women, you know, they go to a city, they have, as long as they're like relatively thin, they have an infinite supply of options up until their mid to late 30s. They aren't really good at making choices and they are living like a dream life for most of their 20s. That, you know, and you're, and they don't really want to give it up either. And they don't want to give up their job either, which is something, or their career, because they view that childbirth may, uh, or becoming a mother may impact that. So a lot of women are just enjoying this dream life, which is promised by our current society, and they're very loyal to it. That's why they're very loyal to the young, uh, you know, women, middle class women are very loyal. Single women are very loyal to the Democratic Party because they promise them. You know, it doesn't, you know, it may not be a utopia forever. It's probably not a utopia when they enter their 40s, but it's a utopia for their, definitely for their 20s. And they, that's why they strongly support the Democratic Party. And they also have some habits that they feel like they shouldn't, you know, work on themselves. They feel they can get fat and they can, you know, have hobbies that are an interest and personality quirks that are very unappealing to men. But they feel like they don't have to work on that because they can just... You know, they're a dream, an ideal, no matter what they are. And both liberals and conservatives tell that to women, especially with conservative femme cell women. I think it might even be worse because, like, the whole rhetoric from conservatives is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with women. They're like perfect little angels and they're getting manipulated by evil men. And it's all the evil men's fault. So there's no articles about how women need to step up and become mothers or work on that because they are all ready for it. These There's just too many, you know... Uh, man children playing video games too much but all that discourse fundamentally uh, you know misunderstands and doesn't account for the entire situation which there are there are large problems with both young men and women but conservatives never account for the problems of women and that that all the problems are with men and then it's like strongly pushing them to step up and just accept like whatever tubby comes your way and that you're treating her like she's a you know the woman of your dreams and like the perfect ideal and she may not actually fit that, that bill, but that's like what a lot of that discourse is. So anytime I see this like stepping up a man or the manhood stuff, because that is becoming a big, uh, that is something that like the masculinity stuff, it's was limited to more of the online rights sphere. And it's now gone into the mainstream, especially with Josh Hawley and some other specials. The crisis, the Tucker Carlson's crisis of men was more, uh, about how like men, like the, the things they are eating are not, um, are feminizing them and stuff. So it's a little bit more interesting than that. But with the Josh Hawley, it's simply that men are not embracing this domesticated dad ideal, which once again, to, it imagines that all these like, you know, it's going to be this big burly Davy seal or this risk taker, this man who lives on the edge and dangerous, which a lot of those guys do not want to become des- domesticated at all. But guys in general are also uh, reluctant to maybe get into marriages where it can end a divorce and they lose everything. 
or you know the women that are out there are maybe not that good for them or it's hard to find women for them you know they try very hard maybe they're looks maxing you know while the women are looks minimizing and all this stuff but none of that is there and that conservatives only advice is like uh, put down the video games get rid of any hobbies you may have or interests you may have that women may find off-putting and ditch the dating apps where you can find women and just you know a woman will magically appear for you and this very terrible advice and a lot of it is driven by these older conservative men just listening to the complaints among their interns and younger female staffers about like i can't find a man where's my where's my chris pratt you know and they're just complaining about that and then they're like oh this is an outrage that they can't find a chris pratt for their fat ass in there and they just go and write a screed about this and this is what these older conservative men are like but you know the gender war is like it is bad and like the state of young men and women or it's probably you could say it's equally bad but i always get when any time conservatives talk about that issue and whether it's holly or nash review it always comes down to blaming the men and about men achieving an ideal that is unlikely to happen and actually their own these women's own fathers did not follow or they either were too dangerous and like you know too risky and that led them to womanizing and having substance abuse and being violent or they maybe were a little too domesticated and they allowed their daughter to uh, make some very poor decisions but you know it's and it it just imagines that you know everything is right with one part of the gender there's no crisis in american womanhood all the crisis is with american manhood and that we need to focus on the men and the advice given to the men is that they need to become more domesticated and more willing to step up when there's less incentive to step up than before and that's why like a lot of guys just like drop out and just like play video games and i don't i don't support that behavior but i can i understand why a lot of guys like that they either feel like they can't succeed in the dating market or they feel that the dating market doesn't provide them with somebody that they want or they you know they're worried about uh, you know getting into a marriage and their life is ruined and stuff of that sort and you know, it's very tough. Like the, there aren't that many societies with this level of female independence, uh, and we're figuring out how to operate around it, so to speak. And it's coming with a lot of chaos in personal relationships and what they want. Because I mean, it's like in a society, it's like women do much better in divorces. You know, they get more of the money. They get more. They they'll get the kids. They're more likely to get the kids. And they're more likely to bounce back. And also, society is more willing to hear the complaints about women about their dating life. You know, with men, it's like, you're a fucking loser. Like, shut up, loser. And people don't want to hear about that, which sometimes rightfully so. Uh, But with women, it's like, you know, it's a full-on social crisis if this woman can't find Chris Pratt, a Chris Pratt husband. But that's it for that. I I might review Josh Hawley's American Manhood book to see to really investigate this thing for an IQ supplement. I have a few IQ supplements I'm wanting to do on recent books. There's one on Patrick Dean's new book, A Regime Change, which I read some excerpts from in before and it looks terrible. We'll try to I may write write a article about that instead, but I will definitely probably do an IQ supplement on American manhood, which will go deeper into this topic. This is a little bit uh, trying to combine two topics that I was just seeing over the Father's Day weekend and trying to combine them into a little bit of a disjointed rant. But hopefully some people got what I was getting at is that larger conclusion as I was trying to repeat this is that 
conservatives really, uh, whenever they talk about manhood and, and the crisis in men and the crisis in relationships and, and ma- marriage things, it always comes down to blaming the men and acting like women are completely blameless in this. And I, I think it's, you know, some of the things with men, you know, the current state of men is not good. You know, there is a lot of wimpy guys out there who maybe not showing, you know, the type of masculinity as they should. But at the same time, there's a lot of obese women out there and a lot of like women who are also becoming terrible, maybe even more than the uh, men who are becoming uh, shunning gamers or something. But that needs to be accounted for and any discussion and why marriage rates are declining and why fertility rates are declining. And it needs to bring a lot of the focus more on the focus on women rather than blaming everything on men. Because if you want to just blame men, we can read the liberal media. There's no reason for the conservative media to browbeat us as well. Browbeat us young men as well. Let's stand up for men <laughs> for here. But that's it for the regular topics. Now on to the common elite questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cognolite option at Highly Respected's Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there if you haven't already. So we may set a record. We have four different questioners today. So we got a lot to get through. Most of them will be simple questions. The first question comes from Tim. And Tim asks, Scott, what do you make about the support or declining support for gay relationships among Americans. And there's a new poll that came out. And what he's talking about is uh, there's this new poll that came out that showed that the amount of Americans who say that gay relationships are morally acceptable has declined from 71% to 64% in just a year. And that's the first time it's declined in a while, a long time. Uh, you know, all the way back in 2002, it was 38, only 38% of Americans overall found same-sex relationships acceptable. And so this notes a decline. And maybe this does show some of that uh, trend towards more social conservatism. But it, one thing to remember is this is driven entirely by Republicans, is that there was virtually no change among opinions on gay relationships among Democrats and independents is entirely driven by Republicans. And in, in 2022, 56% of Republicans said same-sex relationships were morally acceptable, but now it's only 41%. And so what do I make about this? You know, it is an interesting phenomenon because I think there is finally emerging this backlash towards LGBT pride. It really has gone too far in conservatives due to the fact that conservative media that this has become the number one issue for conservative media over the last two years and that people who consume this and they see the most most outrageous displays you know they see like drag queens twerking in front of kids they're seeing you know this you know kids being ripped from their parents to have you know gender reassignment surgery and all this stuff and that's having an effect on conservatives where they're just like you know we're this we're not finding this morally acceptable due to that now is it having an effect on the rest of society uh, not quite. And it also has to say is that, uh, you know, America, the fact is, is like in t- 2002, you know, not every American was a conservative in 2002, but only 38 percent. You know, that's lower number than all Republicans now found same sex relationships morally acceptable. So it's not as much as it was to 20 years ago. It's probably even a, you know, a, probably a higher figure than it was even in 2012 or 2013 before gay marriage was legal 
but it does mark a shift. Now, is it going to continue to decline? Is it going to stop? It depends a lot about what conservative media is talking about a year from now or whether there is this type of drawdown for Pride Month activities. I mean, there has been a type of you know, stepping back among LGBT people for what type of they're gonna things they're gonna allow at Pride rallies and Pride marches and Pride Month, and you know, corporations are you know taking down some of the gay displays and other things. You know, they're they're they really are retreating to more of a 2018 Pride Month stance rather than the it's a high holy month. It's like equivalent to Christmas season, and how many displays they're gonna making because. You know, I think uh, it is an effect of conservative media. So maybe it is like one hats off to conservative media for making this change is that, you know, a lot more conservatives are probably more fed up and more angry about this issue because it's front and center before them. And they're seeing more outrageous displays from the LGBT crowd than before. And that's creating the decrease in support for relationships. Now, I would like to see if the poll asked, do you think gay marriage should be legal? If that would be a decrease because it's over 70% in according to the last poll I show I saw, I think it was like from 2022 or 2021. It would be interesting to see if that has declined. If people think that, you know, gay relationships are not morally acceptable, but gay marriage should still be legal. You'd be surprised that there'd still be people like that. I mean, that's like a very similar question to Abortion is that there's a lot of people who say that moral abortion is morally unacceptable, but then they believe it should still be legal in most cases. Polls show that. So you could see the similar thing with gay marriage, whether that and that would be an actual policy position um, that would come with this change. So I'd be interested to see if there has been a significant decline there and whether the decline will continue depends a lot on what conservatives are focused on next year. And whether, you know, this is the going to be the defining issue for conservatives into 2024. So it would probably be a little bit more of a decline or about the same number next year when they pull this. But it may change a year or two from now, depending on what how Pride Month is like Pride Month, like receded from the back and conservative media began talking about other issues. You could see the numbers go up again. But it's all about what's front and center before them and what's front and center before them is like definitely the trans and the gender ideology stuff. And that's making, you know, conservatives turn on, uh, turn on the gay lobby in general. So that goes back to, you know, a topic I talked about a, l- a little bit ago. Are, are Americans becoming more socially conservative? Depending on what standard it is, I still don't think they're as socially conservative as they were, you know, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, because the, 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 the stance or the definition of it or the standard for it has radically changed in just a short amount of time. But among Republicans, they are shifting towards positions you would now call socially conservative, and that is like becoming a, a more predominant focus. Because the same poll found also declining support whether divorce is morally acceptable and whether birth control is morally acceptable. And once again, those were only found among Republicans. So we'll see how long this lasts. It's a you know an interesting phenomenon. It's the first time I've seen besides on immigration and some other race issues, you know, so it wouldn't be the first time. But it is interesting that conservatives are changing on uh, gay issues, but it is due to what's front and center before them and what conservative media commentators and Republican politicians are talking about. So the next question moving along, the next question comes from New England Refugee, one of our favorites. 
He asked me, hey, Scott, one of my favorite IQ supplements from you is your ventures in alt tech. Have you been on Gab since? Are those sites now pretty irrelevant with the new Elon Twitter? Thanks. Um, I actually did. Actually, I got this question. I was like, what's been going on Gab? So I went on Gab and um, not seeing much activity. I think a lot of these alt tech sites have um, declined a lot over the Elon thing. Like I, I see Torba and others like always like spending, they're not even telling people to get on Gab. They're just on Twitter, you know, advancing their own agenda and stuff. And a lot of what those all tech platforms has been also this, uh, I don't know if I cover this in my IQ supplement that I did last year is early last year, early 2022, where a lot of the problems that have emerged in all tech is security issues where, you know, the fact is they are primarily for right wingers to share whatever they want. And now they have hacks that get their all this information. I know this happened with Post. There's been some you know concerns over whether Gab Gab's had some hacks into, and there's been a couple of other sites that have had this. And it becomes a made issue if you're like going to be doxxed just for using this website due to their you know weaker security measures than they might have for others. I'm not accusing Gab of having weaker security measures because I believe they solved it, but for a lot of these other sites they do. And it's also that a lot of those people who were on Gab just returned to Twitter because they wanted to come back to Twitter and now they see with Elon they're there. And the one problem is is that you're really in an echo chamber there. You're really in um you're really interacting with people who are not only agree with you but are more likely to be more extreme with you and that due to the fact that it's you know you're situated in a ghetto, it's going to make people like take more and more extreme positions. Because if you go to Gab, man, I, I remember my one adventure in there. They're accusing these people who are like banned from Twitter for being racist and for being offensive. And there they're like, these people are anti-white. These people are like, and they had sharing all these crazy conspiracy theories on there because it's like, you know, anyone outside the ghetto is a suspect. So it made for a very entertaining experience. But I think a lot of those people have just like stopped posting or just moved on to Twitter. Um, I, I wouldn't say they're still, they're actually irrelevant, but they're, they're less relevant now with Elon Twitter. And I think it's, you know, not everyone's been allowed back on Twitter, but really the platform that's now competing with Twitter, if you're not, if you're not comfortable sharing everything you want on Twitter, or if you're not allowed, the real alternative is Telegram, which Telegram is a very different format from Gab because you have to post long posts and other things and you're not scrolling the timeline with what telegram in the same way that you would be with gab and twitter you know you have to go to the individual channel and read all the content you want or get the updates uh it's a little bit different format but i find that telegram is really is still very relevant and is gaining stronger but the other alternatives are not because that are trying to imitate twitter because if you just want a twitter experience you're going to go to twitter um with the exception of the people who are not allowed on and more, but more people are allowed on, and there's you know easier ways to maneuver around the Twitter censorship now than it was before. So, and I noticed that a lot of the people who you know are not allowed on Twitter are not posting on Gab either, uh, which is you know does show a sign of decline within Gab. Uh, so, no, I did get on. I didn't really search around much, but I probably not going to be. On. I mean, Gab attacked me, so <laughs> like they their Telegram channel was attacking me over. Uh, uh, some of the questions and it's like okay <laughs> i guess i'm not wanted on gab <laughs> banned from gab not get on gab as like get off gab um so i think that the main thing is that with 
social media and tech censorship is that we don't really want to be isolated in our own ghettos. We want to be allowed into the town square and the town and the forums of our age. And it's nice to have those alternatives when they exist, but they're never going to exist as real alternative town squares because they're only going to attract people who are banned from Twitter, who are going to be outside, who are going to be ostracized from the normal platforms and they're going to find their own little home and it gets a little crazy when it's just the crazies talking with each other but when you have to interact with other people and see like your message you're more likely to get your message out there for one and you're more likely to tailor your message to ensure that it gets out there rather than you're just trying to one-up each other and who can be the most extreme and most radical which i always find is a problem with some of these alt tech platforms so i still support them but the real goal with, with online media is to stay in the town squares and the public forums of our time. And Telegram is sort of emerging as that. So that could be an alt tech that, uh, even though there are problems with Telegram, because a lot of people, channels will get banned from uh, Apple or Apple services, and you can't see them on your phone. And same with Google services, and you can't see them at all unless you have to you know, go through some hoops to find them. So there's still problems with Telegram, but but outside of that, I find that all the other alt tech platforms are not doing as hot. And really, what Twitter, for the most part, is providing the experience that people want and allowing for a greater range of free speech than before. So moving along, second question comes from Mystery, and Mystery asks, "What practical options do we have for restoring freedom of speech in America?" I've heard. Two proposals, either repeal the Civil Rights Act, which seems like an incredibly tall order from optics perspective, or alternatively amend the CRA to include political views as a protected class. What do you think of these two options, and are there any other proposals to solve this? So maybe you might, I think you might be meaning freedom of association, but are, well, you could actually be meaning both of them. I've actually had a debate about this. So there's two questions here. Well, with restoring freedom of speech, yeah, you. This is top. I'll actually just solve this on the question of debating between the two proposals, rather than the larger question, which we'll definitely come back to uh, in another podcast. But on debating between the two proposals, because I once time was debating with somebody about this, uh, you know, whether we should repeal the Civil Rights Act or amend the Civil Rights Act to include political views, because a person was telling me that you know even when we did repeal the Civil Rights Act, it would still have the same situation we have today. And there'd be even a greater degree of discrimination against conservatives and right-wingers without that. And I argued that, you know, if we pushed America to want to repeal the Civil Rights Act, that it'd be such a massive social and cultural change that we wouldn't have to worry about that. And as a political argument, you know, you could say that's like a tall order from an optics perspective, but I think there's a greater willingness to say we should repeal the Civil Rights Act. I mean, a lot of what Vivek Ramaswamy is saying is coming very, very close to that. And amending the CRA to include political views as a protected class, I am skeptical that would still include us. Because they would still find other ways to say this, like, well, this is not a political view, this is harassment of minorities. They could go straight back to the Civil Rights Act and say, like, well, his views discriminate against everyone else. And then that could help out people who are like, I'm going to kill my boss for communist reasons. And they're like, oh, you're firing that person for political views. And so I'm a little bit skeptical about 
expanding the Civil Rights Act because that will ensure the Civil Rights Act mindset remains dominant in America. And I think both of them are our tall orders. But as a goal as a political movement, saying we want to repeal the Civil Rights Act is simple, clear, and then we make the case for why it should happen is that it, it hinders freedom of speech, it hinders freedom of association, and it creates this massive civil rights bureaucracy and this massive civil rights mindset that limits American greatness. And I think, you know, it's a it's a long-term goal we can work towards and try to make the case for repealing the Civil Rights Act or repealing its most harmful provisions or trying to reform it. Uh, with political speech, you know, that is a tempting proposal, but I do feel that companies, even if you want a lawsuit, you'd still, you know, be subject to it. You know, California... And its civil rights laws and its anti-discrimination laws does allow for our excludes or not excludes, but includes political viewpoint discrimination as in that. And it was over an issue of these guys, these neo-Nazis in the 80s being kicked out of a restaurant. And the court, you know, California court said that that's like a violation of the their anti-discrimination laws. So that includes like you know, Nazis in it. But even there, you know, California, like there's people who political dissidents who get fired from their job all the time. And also, you know, the cost of lawfare to fight this, you know, if you're just some random guy who's like accused of being a racist or whatever, it's very hard for you to raise the funds and the resources to wage that type of lawsuit. It's much easier if it's a, like a leftist or some radical BLM agitator to raise those type of money. So I would think it is a long-term perspective of what we should be focusing on. It's better to focus on repealing the Civil Rights Act because that's about pushing Americans to think differently and how we view our nation and how we view how life should be and what we value most. And that's about creating a cultural change to make a greater nation again while amending the Civil Rights Act is accepting that mindset but then trying to get our little piece of the pie, which... We may not even get our piece of the pie, even with the uh, amendment. So that's my viewpoint on it. Both of them are tall orders, but I think it was a goal for a movement. I think repealing the Civil Rights Act is a better goal to just state to the public. And the final question comes from Future American Refugee, and it's about a topic we discussed earlier. And he says, I have two questions about Governor Newsom. When Governor Newsom was interviewed by Hannity earlier this week, Hannity proposed a two-hour debate between Newsom and Governor DeSantis to be moderated by Hannity with open discussions, free of interruptions on broad topics. Newsom's response was positive. He said he would love to make it three hours, but that DeSantis won't debate him. DeSantis was asked about it and he refused to give a real answer and basically pondered the question by saying Newsom has not declared for president, so the question is essentially worthless. So one, why do you think DeSantis is so against the idea of debating Newsom? This is obvious. DeSantis is a stilted wooden politician who could not debate he he would have to stick to his note cards newsom would run over him like it would be like a bulldozer just going over to santis it would be i would you know i don't like newsom i i definitely hate newsom more than DeSantis, but i would fully support a debate because newsom would just like dominate him it would be so bad because newsom DeSantis like you have the woke mind virus and newsom be like is that from your note cards? Did you mix up your note cards? Why are you getting so nervous? Why are you getting so nervous? And he would just own him so badly. It doesn't matter that Newsom's ideas are crazy, but DeSantis always looks bad in debates, even with he, when he's debating against Gillum, even when he was debating last year uh, against, um, now I forget the guy, but the, uh, the Democratic, the former Republican who's a perennial candidate for office, 
He always looks bad in baits. And he would be off script. It would not be a careful. It would not be a safe space for him. You know, even with Hannity, like giving him, you know, like a safer, you know, environment and giving him more layups and probably being more supportive of him than Newsom. Newsom's just like a Chad. Newsom is confident. Newsom is like incredible in debates and in interviews. And he would just like steamroll over him. So that's why DeSantis knows that his whole reputation would be ruined as this like Chad Alpha who's like destroying the left. We're going after the left. He would just like, uh, 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 I don't know. Uh, Casey, save me. And then he would, Newsom would just like be a total, it would be, you know, he would be, Newsom would be stuffing him in a locker. And then Gavin and DeSantis like, let me out of the locker. The wokeness, I've been, I've been owned by the wokeness. Let me out of the woke locker. And it would be very bad. DeSantis would be destroyed by a debate with Newsom. It would be, and and DeSantis is smart enough to realize this. So. That's obviously why. DeSantis doesn't want to participate in the Republican presidential debates because of how stilted he is about how he has to be stuck to his note cards. He has to be totally scripted. And if someone gets him off script, it's like a big problem for DeSantis. So that's uh, my answer to that. And two, in the same Hannity interview, Newsom only had positive things to say of Trump. Likewise, seems to only have positive things to say about Newsom. Can you please talk about this strange circumstance where Newsom and Trump appear to be friendly towards each other publicly and why that may be the case? I think it's just, you know, two alphas representing that. It is a little bit weird. I don't think Trump should be praising Newsom because Newsom... President Newsom would be a nightmare. In some ways, it'd be like, "Wow, we finally have a chat of the office," but that chat's gonna throw me in jail. So I don't, I don't know. But it is like, uh, you know, real recognizes real. It's similar to um, how Hitler and Stalin both had very positive things to say about each other, despite them being uh, ideological mortal enemies. But they're both like, "Oh man, that guy's got." These prison camps, I like that idea. I'm going to adopt that. Uh, you know, killing uh, people in your party? Whoa, that's a great idea. And so maybe you can see that a little bit with Newsom and Trump is the kind of Hitler and Stalin uh, mutual uh, uh, recognition of each other. I Trump really should stop doing that. Uh, it's not good for Trump. I, all the DeSantis people like latch on to it and say it. Trump should not do that. Like, I'm willing to criticize Trump when he's doing wrong. I don't think this is a big problem. But, you know, Trump should be a little bit smarter. He should say, like, oh, you know, Newsom's got great hair. But what he's doing to California is terrible. It's destroying the state. You know, he needs to be more like that. He shouldn't be praising him. But I think it's just a case of real recognizing real. I really don't want to celebrate Newsom too much. This is like sounding like it. I do think Newsom is a nightmare because he is like a Chad Alpha guy who's like incredibly charismatic. And he would be Blue Caesar. Like he would just tell like Supreme Court would tell him to do something. He's like, fuck off, Supreme Court. We're doing this. And then the liberal media would be like, yeah, let's go do some. And that would be like throwing us in jail. Um, but I, you know, you can, re- real can recognize real. You can still say like, well, this guy is like a authoritarian leader and he's, you know, he is pretty Chad and alpha, but at the same time, uh, I would be terrified if he was president of my country based on his political beliefs. And so Trump shouldn't, uh, like that, but also Trump is a little bit too susceptible to anyone praising him and be like, Oh, he says such great things about me. I can't say anything bad about him, but it's a little bit of that. I don't know why Newsom is saying positive things about Trump. 
Um, that's actually a really curious thing because that's not going to help him with that really, really hurts him among Democratic voters. But maybe he was just saying that to, you know, present himself in a different light to Fox News viewers. And he was saying that stuff. And it's the same way with RFK Jr. You know, RFK Jr. was like strongly criticizing Trump when he was president. But now he's like, oh, I, I thought Trump's immigration policies were great. He's like, I like Trump. I stand with Trump. And he's saying that to win over Fox News viewers. So I would say that's a little bit of Newsom's thing. And with Trump, it's like real recognizes real for both of them, probably. And to like Trump always has nice things to say about anyone who says nice things about him, which he should change. He should criticize Newsom. He should not praise Newsom. But it's still really funny no matter what. But anyway, that's it for this podcast today. I thought this was going to be a short podcast, under an hour. But uh, I guess me lamenting uh, the good men epidemic turned this into an hour and 35 minutes. But anyway, that's it for today's episode. We're going to have great articles later this week. I'm going to post my VDR speech, which I went off topic with my VDR speech uh, at, the, at the castle last weekend. It was actually a very good conference. There was uh, bagpipes playing for Steve Saylor as he was introduced, so that was pretty cool. It was a great event. Uh, my speech, I uh, you know, I ad-libbed a lot of it. I just had like a basic script and spoke extemporaneously for most of it, but it was just like giving me a structure. But the speech that I would post uh, gives you a gist of what I talked about and the real spirit of it. So I'll post that tomorrow. I'll probably have another article later this week as well, and we'll definitely have a terrific, incredible IQ supplement later this week. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.